On August 29th, 2018, I ended up on the phone with a man named Stuart Farber. He'd apparently dedicated a significant portion of his life to raising awareness about nasal radium irradiation. That day, he confirmed for me that Johns Hopkins is complicit in covering up the effects of the treatment. On August 29th, 2018, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I didn't record that phone call. But the audio that you hear in this episode comes from a phone call that I had with Stuart Farber this past week on the 16th of April, 2020. Hello? Hi, Stuart. It's Kelly. How are you doing? Yes, I saw that your name came up. Yeah. I'm doing fine. How about you? Now, since I really started delving into this podcast project a number of weeks ago, I've been in touch with Stuart Farber. We've exchanged some emails. This is our third phone call. And at this point, he's also listened to the first two episodes of the podcast. To go back to August of 2018, I was wandering my neighborhood barefoot trying to maintain cell phone reception as I had this call with Stuart Farber. It became clear pretty quickly that I was speaking with the foremost expert on nasal radium irradiation in the country. He knew a lot, and thankfully for me, he was willing to share a lot of what he knew and what he had experienced while dedicating his life to bringing awareness to the issue of nasal radium irradiation. In the 90s, he was putting a lot of information out in the press. I was working with a lot of different uh, news media uh, to get attention to this. I kind of, uh, you know, learned to, to play to play the game, as it were, you know, and uh, got, you know, national coverage. I mean, I've got a thick pile of uh, news clips of it, you know, back in... 94, 5, 6, uh, about this. Uh. Some of the initial documents that my mom and I found about NRI came from this very deliberate press push on the part of Stuart Farber. This includes some sources that I've referenced in previous episodes, and it includes sources that reference the 1997 dissertation completed at Johns Hopkins by one Hsin Che Ye. Ye's thesis was published in 1997 at Johns Hopkins, but I was unable to find a copy of it, as I said in episode 2. I even, as I said, called and left a message for the author of the dissertation, but that was before Stuart told me exactly how Johns Hopkins was complicit in covering up the true effects of the treatment. Here he is in April 2020, describing what happened in 1998 after the thesis was published. I got the thesis shortly after it was published uh, through a normal uh, request. I paid for uh, whatever it was, uh, 30 or so dollars, um, I can't remember. But shortly, sometime not too long after I received it, the UMI thesis service contacted me and asked me to return it. And they would give me any thesis of my choice in its place. And I, I, I asked them, you know, rather you know, calmly, I said, well, 
could you just put that request in writing so that uh, I know what I'm responding to and I'll, I'll uh, make a decision? Well, of course, I never got anything from them. They didn't want to put this on the record. I did at the time, you know, that became a news article. Uh, I think I discussed that issue with some reporter somewhere who never put that, you know, that would be on, in, in, the, in the open, as it were, uh, for, contemporaneously, I guess it would be. Here, I'm pretty sure he's referring to the 1999 City Paper article, which does tell the story of the bizarre request for the return of the thesis. Well, let's just say that in August of 2018, I did manage to get my hands on a copy of the 1997 dissertation by Hsin Ye of Johns Hopkins University. I'll quickly just read an excerpt from the abstract. Radium treatment of the nasopharynx to reduce adenoid hypertrophy was widely used in the past for prevention of hearing loss. In 1978, a study exploring the health consequences of nasopharyngeal radium irradiation was conducted at the Clinic for Prevention of Deafness in Children in Washington County, Maryland. The study found an excess risk of brain tumors. The 1997 study that was being completed for this dissertation was a continued follow-up of the irradiated and non-irradiated patients at the clinic to assess the risk of brain tumors and other neoplasms of the head and neck developing during a 40-year period, to assess possible hormone-related disorders resulting from irradiation of the pituitary gland, and to compare the cancer incidence, mortality rates, and morbidity rates between irradiated and non-irradiated groups. The abstract says, A significantly increased risk of tumors of the head and neck was observed among the radiation-exposed individuals. Seven brain tumor cases, malignant and benign, were identified in the irradiated group versus none in the non-irradiated group. Slightly elevated risks were also observed in tumors of pharynx, larynx, and thyroid. In the conclusion, yeah, the author urges... For further study, she writes, as the size of the irradiated group is small in this study, a longer period of follow-up would be helpful to improve statistical power. Besides, as the subjects become older and reach the high-risk period for developing diseases, the longer period of follow-up may reveal late effects from radiation exposure and indirect effects associated with other factors. So... That research isn't being done. Hopkins hasn't touched the issue since 2001 when they published a shortened version of the dissertation that, let's say, had some minor differences. Here's Stuart speaking to some of those differences. You were mentioning the 2001 uh, journal article in the American Journal of Epidemiology. Yes. Yes. What's interesting is the thesis came out in 97. They dragged their feet as long as they possibly could. Uh, that's probably, you know, usually when a thesis is, uh, a person gets a PhD, 
they put the results of the you know, the main findings in a in an article in a journal article rather quickly just to get um, you know in the in the open medical literature. Hopkins or Yeh in writing that article, that is the most word engineered kind of a. You know, absurd. You know, minimization of any radium health effects. Uh, they, they actually make it look like it, it's good for you. Uh, in the main points, and if you look at the abstract, this is what you know. Most people, most doctors, when they look at any paper that any research that comes out, almost none of them ever read beyond the abstract in terms of uh, what does this mean to me? You know, that's, the average doctor doesn't keep up on the medical literature, and, and uh, certainly if the abstract says it's no, it's no don't worry about it. Um, and uh, that's why, you know, today or even uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the doctors of the day had no knowledge of the health effects of this, and it's even worse now. Um, that 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 what Ye put into the literature there was uh, was quite simply uh, I think uh, ethically challenged. Yeah, what I have I have it pulled up in front of me right now, and the the abstract uh, mentions there were seven brain tumor cases in the irradiated group, three malignant and four benign, um, versus none in the non irradiated group. And in the discussion, it says, although there was an excess risk of brain tumors associated with radiation, a dose-response effect could not be demonstrated because of the small number of cases. Yeah, that is such a, uh, a bogus argument to say. You know, if you have, say, maybe they were following up at that point about 600 kids, 700 max, um, uh, as adults, You've got seven benign and malignant brain tumors and zero in the control group, twice as large. Um, if you can't, you know, if, if you can manipulate those statistics to uh, come up with uh, some statement that it's not, not significant, uh, you know, you're doing something uh, deliberately uh, deceitful. You know, the, the incidence of benign or malignant brain tumors is a certain level, and then you keep saying, okay, if you looked at, okay, one case, two, three, you you get up to seven cases in a group of 700, one one in a hundred. That that is an amazing uh, relative risk, and that's why when they came up with their adjust, you know, when they mentioned in the thesis, they tried to, you know, review the relative risk, um, which means the number of cases seen in the contr- treated group versus the number of cases, the rate in the in the control group. Of course, um, you, you know, the, you can't have a relative, you can't de- derive a relative risk seven over zero because that's infinity. So they do some, they did some little statistical manipulation where they subtract the case and then they look at, they add a case over to the radiant untreated group, and they came up with an adjusted relative risk, as they they termed it, of 30.9, I think the number was, if you look at the thesis. He is correct. The thesis says that the corrected relative risk was estimated as 14.8 for brain cancer and was 30.9 if the four benign and three malignant brain tumors were combined. 
Well, in this case, we have a 3,000% increase you know, on the adjusted relative risk basis that EA herself derived. Stuart Farber then goes on to express his disbelief that an institution like Hawkins just gets to walk away from this while putting out, along with the CDC, that there's no malignant or non-malignant conditions associated with the treatment of nasal radium irradiation. Yeah, I mean, Hopkins has gone, gone, gone to, in every direction trying to minimize this thing. A lot, and now the CDC joined them that there are no health effects. The, the actual statement, if you look at the CDC webpage, there are no, there's no indication of any benign or malignant health effects from nasal radium radiation. Yeah, and meanwhile, the... That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. The dissertation says in the abstract, a significantly increased risk of tumors of the head and neck was observed among the radiation-exposed individuals. But in the 2001 study, it also says that that can't be significant. (laughs) So it's like within a matter of years, suddenly the same amount of tumors has become insignificant even though it's yeah. the same cohort, the same number of tumors, the same type of tumors. Same study. The same study. Yeah. So, at best, the information that's coming out of Hopkins is misleading. At worst, it's a deliberate cover-up. And there are presently no follow-up studies being done, even though Yay was right. The population that is at the most risk associated with this treatment is facing more and more risk every single day. Now, I want to return for a moment to what happened in the events leading up to the publication of the 1997 dissertation. In the mid-1990s, there was some attention being drawn to this issue, as I mentioned earlier, because of the press coverage that Stuart Farber was drumming up. But there was also some concern around another vulnerable population of people who would receive the treatment, United States military veterans. Now I'm going to read some of Stuart Farber's testimony from a 19... 96 hearing to the U.S. Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs. Stewart's first point in the 1996 testimony is that Acre did not willingly take up the NRI issue, and if not pushed by him, it would have ignored the issue. To remind you, Acre is the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, which issued its final report to the president on October 3rd of 1995, after reviewing over 4,000 human radiation experiments. We talked about it briefly in episode two of the podcast. To reiterate, the 1995 report said that the experiment on the 582 Baltimore third grade children was considered therapeutic research and therefore did not fall under the purview of their study, which only looked at non-therapeutic experiments on children. To read directly from the report, it says, The nasopharyngeal experiment thus belongs to a class of research the committee did not investigate. Therapeutic research with children. So, in this 1996 testimony at the Senate hearing, 
Stewart's first point is that Aker did not willingly address the issue at all, and that had he not urged them, they likely wouldn't have mentioned it in the report at all. He begins with his first point, saying, In early 1994, as a radiation risk assessment specialist, I began a personal effort to bring public attention to nasal radium irradiation, which I recognized as representing an important human biomedical radiation issue, which had been largely overlooked and ignored by the medical and scientific community. In an earlier 1992 letter to the editor to the New England Journal of Medicine, I had called for the identification and medical surveillance of a group estimated at that time as numbering no fewer than 5,000 Navy submariners who, through my research, I had estimated to have received nasal radium irradiation on entering the Navy from 1945 into the 1960s. However, the response by the medical and scientific communities, as well as the response by responsible government bureaucracies to this 1992 letter to the editor was totally underwhelming. Farber highlights that in their response to the 1992 letter, the Navy spokesperson's reply said that the risk of NRI on veterans incurred were really relatively small. But did not at the time dispute that at least 5,000 submariners received radium irradiation as trainees. Further, the Navy claimed that the Navy irradiated patients had a right to privacy rather than a right to know that they were potentially at risk, and they claimed an almost complete lack of patient identification data and exposure data represented practical impediments to a follow-up study. I found the Navy spokesperson's response to Stewart's letter. It says, Although the Navy did treat some service members who had hypertrophic lymphoid tissue associated with the station tube dysfunction with radium-226 irradiation until about 1957, those persons were treated according to U.S. practice norms at the time. The risk incurred with these treatments were relatively small, despite the comments of Farber. And later, although I agree that it would be ideal to follow all patients who receive nasopharyngeal irradiation, a fruitful study would be difficult at best to complete. Tune in to next week's episode to hear more of my conversation with Stuart Farber, as well as to hear more of the history about the use of the treatment on U.S. military veterans, along with more of the history of what happened in the 1990s leading up to the dissertation that Johns Hopkins has ultimately kept from the public. Theme music for this episode is the song Mama Said by Cat Clyde.